sounds like a brilliant person. Hello and welcome to the next 10,000 hours. Your peek behind the scenes at a... Under the skirt. (laughs) Or whatever. At a growing media studio headed by two experts who are just expert enough to realize how little being an expert really means. I am one of your hosts, J. Daniel Sawyer. And I am the other person in the room, Kitty Nagian. The brains behind the outfit, which explains the crazy shit we do. Ow! (laughs) We are right now sitting in the revamped front office of AWP Productions, which is now decorated instead of with bookshelves, with whiteboards. It's kind of scary, actually. The whole room has been eaten by whiteboards. And the reason that the whole room has been eaten by whiteboards is that our brains, impressive, wrinkled, and gray though they are, are not big enough to contain all the shit that we need to keep track of over the next few months. No kidding. With the next 10,000 hours, free will, crud rat, three books getting ready for release, Ah! and a comic strip ramping up. Oh, There's a lot to keep track of, and so we have moved from a previous setup with one warboard plus a wiki to... A thousand. I mean, three. Three warboards plus a release board plus a doodle art board plus a wiki. And the kitchen sink. And this is basically an essential move anytime you uh, start to get into things that are a little beyond your ken. One of the things that you can get away with in the first 10,000 hours that you can't get away with in the next 10,000 hours is keeping everything in your head. Or on a bunch of post-it notes under the table. Tend to find them stuck to a dead cat that suffocated. (laughs) Or three-year-old gum. (laughs) You're much more likely to find three-year-old gum under a desk than a cat. Depends on how dead the cat is. They have metabolisms, they breathe, they die, they can get suffocated by post-it notes too. It's not just me. (laughs) Please tell me it's not just me. They choke on hairballs, that's like me choking on post-it notes, right? Dan, you've never choked on a post-it note. Shh, this is theater. (laughs) In other words, the topic of today's next 10,000 hours is... Documentarianism. Document... Documentation. Documentation and organization. One of the things that I noticed in myself and then started noticing in a lot of other authors and producers of different sorts of musicians over the years is that the smarter someone is, the more game they are, the more alacrity they have for rising to new challenges, the less willing they tend to be to outsource any of their brain power to things like notepads and whatnot. And this can become a problem when you get into complex projects that your brain really can't handle all at once. And everyone I know hit sometime toward the end of that first 10,000 hours. They hit that wall, assuming they weren't obsessive compulsive already. Not that I know anyone like that um, who writes steampunk novels or anything. Ow! (laughs) Hi, Gail. (laughs) Is that uh, at some point you hit a wall where you blow an entire project because you start forgetting details in this cascading fashion. At first, it's a couple little ones, and they have knock-on effects until eventually the whole project gets completely hosed because your documentation strategy is not adequate to the task. Or you are completely avoiding documentation because you think, I'm smart, damn it, I should be able to hold it all in my head. If I can imagine it, it should stay there. When you say documentation, I'm thinking of like a how-to guide to whatever the fuck we're doing. So that's the stage we're at. That's the second stage. The first stage Uh of documentation, which we mastered long ago, is writing lists. You've got to 
to-do list that you have to accomplish. You're writing a mystery, you've got clues, you make a list of the clues to make sure that you tie them all up, that kind of thing. Once you get into more collaborative projects or things that span more than one medium or things that require you to get a partner working on the same part of the business that you normally do, you have to start documenting your process because otherwise there's no way to bring them in on it. And it has these unexpected benefits like making you think through the habits that you've picked up that are getting in your way and figure out, oh, I can get rid of this whole swath of my workflow because it doesn't actually accomplish anything anymore. I had it there to take care of this other problem that is no longer a problem. So it has the effect of streamlining your workflow and of giving you a way to look and see where you are with everything at a glance. It saves gobs of time. And uh, it's the most difficult thing I've ever had convincing people to do when they come to me and say, Ah, help! I've run out of time! I can't get my books done! I can't get my podcast done! I can't do anything, but there's so much to do! Okay, so you have babbled for miles upon the, um, the need and importance of documentation. What exactly does documentation accomplish and how do you do it? So generally speaking, you're going to need a few kinds of documentation. We'll start out assuming you're a writer. You're going to need your series Bible. Um, this is where you keep all the information that you might need to access in future books. So character descriptions, uh, the accent they talk with, maybe a sample of their dialogue so that you've got a quick, easy way to look for their voice. Is this something you'd only do for a long series or is this something that you would do for a single novel? You might do it for a single novel if the novel was complex enough. Um, actually, it's not a bad idea to do it for a single novel, even if the novel isn't complex, because it is very easy to accidentally change your character's eye color or something like that in the middle of the book. But if you've got your crib sheets at hand, you minimize... Actually, it's hard to tell which is worse, it going wrong and you not catching it and the reader catching it, or it going wrong and you do catch it, and then you have to comb back through the manuscript and look for every single instance of, for example, eye color. However obliquely it may be referenced in the manuscript, because it's not like you can just Google the color of her eyes. Because you might have that phrase once, but you may reference the color of her eyes in a thousand different ways. Not Google, but search find and replace wow how google has ruined the english language 101 so that's one level of documentation another thing is documenting your process for us to get a book out the door there's a number of stages it needs to go through there's right. needs to be written needs to be sent to the betas mm -hmm. for continuity and proof needs to go to layout layout and, and then uh design cover design then there's the proof stage where we get the uh, printed proof back and we each go through it with a red pen to get all the errors that may have crept in while we were laying it out. Mm -hmm. Apply those changes to the paperback, cross-check them with the ebook to see if there were any that we didn't catch when we were laying out the ebook. Then at that point, it's time to do up the back cover copy and mm -hmm. send it out for review blurbs. And eventually it all comes together and we release it and we've got a book. Woo! That entire process, which I've just related very quickly, takes up about a thousand words in the wiki. A very carefully enumerated, detailed step. For, for each series, we have um, different entries per series, mm -hmm. because each series will have different conventions, um, different margin sizing, different placement of uh, chapters, and different font conventions, different page numbering conventions. Every niggling, stupid little detail you can think of, it's on that wiki. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and the reason we document it is the first one was its own thing and we didn't have anything to reference, so we just did it. And then the next one in the series, we're like, oh, this is a simple series. We know what is going on. And the amount of back and forth between the first book and the second book. Um, we need add- a quick reference sheet or this is going to take forever. Yeah. And it really did. The, do, go, doing the third book in the Lantham series took half as much time as doing the second book. So that's an example of documenting the publishing process. And of course, now that we're back into podcasting, the entire podcasting process is documented. Um, the uh, And since we did the CrudRat campaign, we've been documenting the whole crowdfunding process. and We've got new pages for the Doodle Art um, videos that we're doing with the wiki. So that we're now beginning to grow out our video documentation up until this project the video production was stuff that i just did in my head from the fly because we weren't collaborating on that at all that Mm -hmm. was just all me but as soon as you came in i had to sit down and figure out what it was that i was doing because i didn't know it had just become habit Uh, so getting all that documented has been um considerable time sink but it's going to save so much time in the future and that's not the stuff that goes on the walls the warboards are more organizational rather than processes it's keeping track of what projects we have on hand so we don't forget that we have a book that needs a cover right they're the studio at a glance you look at these boards and you see what books are in the queue what steps of that major process have been done because they're checked off what steps need to be done what steps were done and need to we need to go back over because we've discovered an error and then all the deadlines get put up there too so we can track how much time we've got on each thing and dynamically adjust the way that we're scheduling things and then occasionally like this last week when we essentially missed a free will episode you'll be getting two podcast episodes this week because we we missed free will last week so you're getting last week's episode this week that happens when something crops up and in this case what cropped up is when crudrat funded successfully we started looking out and figuring out what we needed to lay in place for infrastructure which essentially is documentation and we realized that in order to pull crudrat off in a timely manner with as few interruptions to our other projects as possible we needed a lot more whiteboards we needed to reorganize the studio um, things got moved to different rooms so that we would have uh, optimal physical flow in the space and more warboards so we could keep track of all the extra deadlines that Crudrat was imposing on us. But now that it's all up, production's picking back up again and we're moving much faster than we were before. Almost going light speed. <laughs> I, I see blurs around the room. It's because you're not wearing your glasses. Oh, shush. <laughs> so anyway, when you hit your next 10,000 hours, or if you're in your next 10,000 hours, and uh, you start to notice that things are slipping away from you, It's probably because there's parts of your process that you didn't think to document before that you were doing unconsciously that are slipping away from you as the demands on your time and your and your mind go up. So it's frequently in that situation, it's worth taking a couple of days out and working through looking at what you've got written down and how you're tracking your progress and making adjustments to that, because even if it adds 20 minutes to your day to keep that documentation up, it's going to save you days and days and days at every step of the project uh so yeah one of the reasons that uh we're doing video documentaries of the production process for crudrat is that uh, you don't get to see if you weren't a backer nope (laughs) we wanted to document our process in serious detail to reference for later projects the making tracks was a book that came out of the process of writing documentation i was actually asked to uh, give a workshop 
on making audiobooks. And so I started rating my notes to, to prepare this, rating my documentation and realizing that my process had evolved. So I needed to fill in. So the process of writing, making tracks was actually also the process of sprucing up my own documentation for mm-hmm. how audiobook production works. So if you want to find out how I do audiobook production, <laughs> that's actually, we've got a, a very dog-eared copy here in the studio that we reference regularly. <laughs> yep. And, um, and I'm sure there'll be future editions of the book as I discover more tricks and shortcuts. Documenting it can be harder than, than it sounds, at least the higher levels of documenting. Writing a to-do list is one thing, you know, you, you got that. Writing a schedule of what you need to accomplish, everybody does that. Trying to write down process documentation, it's harder than it sounds because you have to break down something that is almost automatic to you. You, you need to be able to break it down into steps that an idiot can do, or, well, not so much an idiot as you when you're really tired, overworked, and possibly drunk. Not that I have any experience with that ever. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I had a bit of resistance to documenting stuff beyond writing a to-do list. Writing things down for me to reference later made no sense to me because I figured I'm writing this process down because I know what I'm doing. If I know what I'm doing, why do I need to reference this thing for later to tell me what I'm doing? I should remember this thing. Why don't I remember this thing? This is dumb. I should remember the things that I know. And if I don't remember them, then I don't actually know them. So why am I that? And this was kind of the crazy mental loop that I had anytime I tried to write down things that I knew for me to use later. So if any of you have got, like, an issue with perfectionism, <clears throat> like me, write it down anyway, really. Because even you will be trying to do a thing that you've done a thousand times at three in the morning after a 30-hour shift. And you won't be able to remember your own name, let alone how in the world you create a book cover or where you put your files last week even if you put them in the same place every single week. Yeah, the trick the trick with this kind of thing is not writing things down for the sake of having them written down. It's that you're essentially outsourcing a lot of real estate in your brain. You're creating systems outside yourself that will support you like scaffolding or structural struts so that you can free up the rest of your brain to do the high-intensity creative work without having to worry about details because you know if you forget you've got somewhere you can look it up. It's sort of like keeping a dictionary around even though you speak English. A translation of that into normal person talk is documentation is like letting someone else remember it for you. I don't think that's normal person at all. I, that, that assumes several levels of Philip K. Dick unreality. That's perfectly normal! Philip <laughs> K. Dick is normal! <laughs> His universe makes more sense than you. His universe <laughs> makes more sense than Congress. Can we Dolly re- paintings make more sense than Congress. Thinking about Congress is like pleading the fifth on the stand. I can't recall. I can't recall. God damn it. I can't recall. (laughs) (laughs) Boobs. So that's all that we have for boring businessy writing stuff and um, making your computer remember things for you. Sounds like a slave relationship now. (laughs) Your world gets weirder and weirder the longer I'm near it. No. My world is magical and wonderful. 
Well, we'll get to hear more about it during Kitty's Corner. (laughs) (laughs) Now something from Dan that is in a perfectly normal, completely sensible world, unlike my brain. Dan will now read a brief story about canned soup and black holes called Chicken Noodle Gravity. Chicken Noodle Gravity, a Lombard Alchemist Tale. I hate to start out this way, but before we get on to the reason I'm standing on this stool with a fez on my head in the middle of the night in front of a double calking bed in a furniture store, which, yes, officer, I swear I'll confess I broke into illegally, before we get to any of that, there's something I've got to tell you. I know it's awful and evil and just plain wrong, but there's no other way around it, and you won't understand anything else unless I say this right up front. So here goes. Stephen was stoned. And when I say stoned, I mean he'd eaten enough brownies and smoked enough pot to put the economies of five or six minor countries into a severe long-term deficit crisis. It was okay. It helped him cope with the chemo, mellowed him out. We didn't have to fight over who got to hold the remote. He was better in bed, too. Not as neurotic. Didn't complain about my mustache when I kissed him. Suits me right for shacking up with a clean freak. The weed was my revenge. Well, the fact that the weed made it possible for him to eat. You see, we had to grow our own, the only way we could afford it, though I swear we probably spent as much on the electricity as we would have on the bud. Not a great climate for it, you know, in the winter. So the revenge part, yeah. That would be his appetite. When he smoked, it came back. It was the only time it came back, and there were only two things he could handle. Brownies and chicken noodle soup. The really rancid stuff that came in a red and white can. I swear, by all that's good and holy in a bowl of X-Lax besides, that was all he could eat. And he hated chocolate almost as much as he hated the soup. Feeding him the soup and the brownies was my revenge on him for getting sick in the first place. Not that I blamed him about the soup. 140 years after it was invented, that stuff still smelled like salted famine and disease glopping out of the can. But after Stephen lost his hair for the third time, I got to love that smell. Not because it smelled any better, but because every time I smelled it, I knew he'd be around at least long enough to eat it. Sometimes a little bit of hope is all you need to keep going. When your life is filled with words like pancreatic, stage four, and terminal, you learn to live with what you can get. So, um, so we smoked like chimneys, screwed like carpenters, sang like sailors, and gambled like day traders. I didn't give much of a damn that the money wouldn't last much longer than him. But he just kept lasting. He didn't want to let me go any more than I wanted to let him go. So first it was the money, then it was the house, then it was the car... But it didn't matter as long as I could keep growing the green and opening those red and white cans. It went on like that all winter. When they diagnosed him, they said he'd last five weeks. We'd made it five months, and we weren't going to make it much longer without changing. And whatever it was, we were going to have to get creative. I was still employed. My job at the casino paid enough in tips that we should have been okay, and my insurance covered all his doctor's visits. But the meds killed us. Cancer drugs move so fast that the difference in survival comes down to what month you were diagnosed now. 
That small cell lung cancer you've got today will kill you, but the tumor your brother discovers in six weeks will be treatable, and the one your mom gets a month after that will be curable. If you can stay alive long enough, then you can stay alive, period. That's the deal. And that's why every penny I earned in salary and tips went to his drugs. And it's why I ate that revolting chicken noodle soup night after night while we smoked up and watched old episodes of Doctor Who. And when I say we spent every penny on drugs, I'm not kidding. I walked to work. Some weeks I did the laundry by hand because we couldn't afford the electricity to wash our socks. But we had to eat, and my salary meant we were too rich for the food bank. I had one option left. One last chance. I'd been selling off my old comic books to keep us in soup and vitamins and myself and vegetables so I could stay healthy enough to take care of him. But I didn't have a lot that was valuable. Stuff that's been well-loved doesn't resell well to collectors. With only a handful left, I needed a way to unload them in a place that might give me a little cash for all of them. Marks, uh, casino customers you understand, always need a fresh source of dough, and when they have a few drinks in them, they get to talking. Over the years, I heard them talking over and over about this one pawn shop down past 3rd Street that paid high rates. Creepy place, they said, out where nobody in their right mind worked, out where the city finally gave up and admitted it had turned into suburbs. Right out on the edge of the hot zone, two miles out past the end of the bus line, Long walk with a box of old comics. At least it wasn't raining. I got there at 4.45, just before closing. The broken-down gray bungalow had front windows stuffed to bursting with knickknacks. The front entry was nearly blocked with large, stuffed predators. And it was cold. Outside, the desert spring dusk shone orange and warm, but inside, even with the fire roaring in the hearth... My breath billowed in front of my face. I dropped the box on the glass display case above the crosses, the pentacles, the talismans from a dozen different religions. I rang the service bell sitting next to the brass idol of Shiva. One thing you could give the guy that ran this place, he could collect like no pack rat I've ever known. May I help you, sir? A young guy, maybe 20, short black hair, nice broad shoulders, cute as a button except for the hollow eyes, and that creepy hairless cat perched on his shoulders like Long John Silver's parrot. Okay, so I liked Treasure Island as a kid. I thought Long John was hot. Get over it. Do you buy comics? He nodded. How much for these? I shoved the box at him. He pulled the yellowed strapping tape back, opened up the lid of my last bit of treasure, he pulled them out one by one, smiling over each, laying them on the counter like they were made of lace. At least, maybe, they'd be going to a good home. It made parting with the last piece of my childhood a little bit easier. The cat walked down his arm and seemed to pour over them as well. Yeah, oh yes, oh, these are nice ones, said the shopkeeper. You know, a lot of these are older than me. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. So, how much are you looking for? Like a real pawnbroker, always let the customer open the bid. My stomach rumbled. I hoped Stephen hadn't lit up yet or he'd be starving. Honestly, anything I can get. 
He clucked his tongue at me, and I winced. I started in a bad bargaining position, and I had nowhere to go but down. Time to grovel. I've got... I need to get food money. My husband's sick. Dying. All our money's going to his treatment. We're out of things to eat. This... I put my hands down on the spread of memories. This is all I have left. He sighed like he was gearing up to insult my mother. Well, I gotta tell you, it's not worth much. These are great old issues, but there's nothing top drawer here. I liked off-kilter stuff when I was a kid. And you liked it a lot. Rare is good, but collectors want a mint. These... These I can't move. I'd be buying decorations, and as you can see... He nodded around the frigid room, hung heavy with all manner of gaudy memorabilia. I don't need any more. I could give you maybe... ten bucks? I nodded. I could feel my shoulders, maybe for the first time in my life, fall a little bit. Up until that moment, I don't think I'd ever felt beaten. A year before, we'd had everything and nowhere to go but on and up. Now the last piece of my life that wasn't already dying was worth the price of two meals. That's all. Just enough soup for two more nights together. Forget it. I ran my hand under the flimsy little books, pushing them back into a modest, almost non-existent pile. It was a mistake coming here. I'm sorry I wasted your time. I'm just... I'm sorry. I put them in the box and made to pick it up, but he put his hand on it. Hold on a minute. Like I said, they're good books. What would you say to a trade? What kind of trade? Follow me. He beckoned me toward the back. Lacking anything better to do, I followed him. The storeroom behind was as crowded as the display room out front and seemed to stretch back forever filling racks sauntering away from me like giant dominoes poised to fall with the slightest push. He led me about halfway down and swept his arm down an aisle. Back here. On the floor, a pack of maybe twenty of those damned little red and white cans. I had to grab the shelves to steady myself. I get these in here every so often. They send them out from the lab. They order more than they can use. Some of the stuff I sell on, some I hand off to the food bank, no reason I can't hand it off to you. There isn't a lot, but... So there it was. Twenty-four cans, twenty-three little ones in a wrapped flat with one missing, and one family-sized. I'd save that one for next time I had two days off in a row, so we could grab lunch and dinner out of it. That night, for dinner, I opened two of the cans and poured them into the saucepan, while it heated, I checked over the label. They were government cans. Standard condensed soup paint job notwithstanding. Singularity Soup. The Singular Experience. Cute. At least the ingredients list was the same as yesterday's soup can, which meant Stephen would be able to keep it down. I passed him a joint and put the Ninth Doctor on TV, and we waited for it to boil. For six glorious nights, we had each other. I turned cards in the day, and at night I turned him over in our bed and grabbed every spare touch I could manage without wearing him out too much. 
So that's the first half of Chicken Noodle Gravity. If you want to find out what is up with the soup cans and why he was wearing a fez on his head in a store at the beginning of the book, you will have to go pick it up yourself. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and wherever else fashionable ebooks are sold. And now that that's done, I commit you into the dubious embrace of the world's most insane pseudo-human. For this week's dose of surreality, in Kitty's Corner. <laughs> This is Kitty's Corner, where the naughty kitties go. I like to tell people, usually people who want to talk about the latest reality TV program, that I do not have a television. This gets me out of having to express an opinion about Honey Boo Boo, which is good because my opinion is that Honey Boo Boo sounds like a pet name Yogi Bear might give his little friend, which is all kinds of wrong. I mean, I can't be the only one who suspects something untoward happening at Jellystone Park, can I? Can I? What surprises me, though, is that this dodge still works in 2013. I mean, how often does a dodge work for eight years? This is why I buy Hondas. Also, I am Japanese, and everything Japanese is vastly superior. <laughs> How'd World War II You, shut up! And now, back to our normal program. Anyways, our last television, one of those big cathode raid thingamabobs that lives in a cabinet and takes up half the living room, died in 2004. It was, I think, about 20 years old at the time. And we never bothered to replace it, which was okay because we didn't really watch TV. Now, in 2004, I don't have a television actually meant I don't watch television. Or, more likely, I watch TV at other people's homes. Or, I am watching the first season of this show on shiny plastic discs in my computer and have no idea what is currently happening in Season 8 on your TV. Please do not tell me who dies and comes back to life in some kind of magical sci-fi thingy. I said don't tell me! Don't. No. 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 Starbuck! No! Today, there's no shortage of ways and means to watch TV without having a device dedicated to that purpose, and to watch TV created in any era, at any time, broadcast from the future via time portal, sadly notwithstanding. And in the time since not having a TV, I've counted, I've watched a season or more of over 30 TV shows, most of them older, and no longer on the air. What's weird is that I think my not-television is a time travel device, because, you know, in the before time, before the not TV, when I actually had a TV, I could lose the entire evening watching only one show. Because, I don't know, the TV was always on like a combination of the Energizer Bunny and a cheerleading nymphomaniac. That would be hilarious. I can see the Energizer Bunny in a little skirt with the pom-pom thingies jumping up and down on top of some other battery-operated toy. And, and the, the images just keep coming and coming and... Um, where was I? Yes, time-traveling device. Yeah. So now I can, like, watch an entire season of Dexter in one night and I still have time to do other things. It's not like it takes up the whole night, even though it actually did take up the whole night. Maybe I just don't sleep anymore. Huh. That could be it. 
but I'm going with time travel device because it makes a whole lot more sense. So anyway, that's like a long way of saying that regardless of my not having a television and having a time traveling TARDIS TV device thing, I'm not watching that reality TV show that you're talking about. And I don't know who that person is. I don't know who's going to win next week, but I'm sure she's a bitch. I prefer entertainment that is much more intellectual and sophisticated. Oh, hey, there's a new season of Archer on Hulu. Goodbye. And this has been Kitty's Corner. If you don't feel cornered by a cat, I clearly haven't eaten your face. So I guess that's going to be it for us this week. Uh, sorry it took so long this week. Well these weeks uh, but uh, hopefully this twofer makes up for it uh, free will should also be on your feed if not already then any minute now um keep in mind that we are scraping around trying to come up with topics for the opening discussion on this show so if you have questions you want to ask us we would totally love to outsource our creative labor to to take your questions and make them into fabulous shows so uh, send uh, questions, comments, criticisms, or death threats. Nah, no death threats on this show. Questions, comments, criticisms, and bad reviews to feedback at jdsawyer.net or call the normal voicemail line for antithesis because I don't remember what it is right now because it's late and I'm mixing audio. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess that'll do it till next time. So yep. we'll see you guys around. Have a good week.